Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide, that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have a quick note about the foundation. So we're embarked on a project to study anxiety and depression and PTSD. The goal is to make a low-cost or a no-cost resource for people. And what we're going to do is go through or going through about 5,000 disparate sources, so books, lectures, interviews, peer-reviewed papers, putting it all together, looking for every single possible treatment for anxiety, depression, and PTSD, and then making it available to people. So if you have interest in this project, uh, we need help with funding and volunteers, etc. go to FindingGeniusFoundation.org. And today, my guest, I think you'll really like him. His name is Jim Lord. He's the author of a book called The Raising of Money and another book called Bounce Back Higher. Uh, his website is leadershipphilanthropy.com, and we're going to talk about uh, his work and his ideas. So, Jim, thank you for coming. Uh, it's a pleasure. Looking forward to seeing what insights come up uh, because of the way you go about asking questions, Richard. Oh, thank you. Well, tell me a bit about your background first, and you know, then we'll get to what you do today. My earliest memory about third grade was when I asked my father why study science. And uh, he said, well, that's a good question. Ask your teacher. The teacher really didn't pick up on it and speak to his passion or anything like that. But I decided that asking questions was a pretty good way to go. And uh, then the next big one for me was why finish high school? So I dropped out of high school, joined the Navy, became a, a captain's bugler where I played taps at funerals for Navy, uh, deceased Navy folks. And maybe that was my first taste of something around mortality when I was about eight, 17, 18 years old, besides my mother dying when I was about, when I was about eight years old. And, and so I think that's kind of grounded me early on. And the place that the breakthrough kind of came for me with uh, philanthropy and really more specifically 
human behavior in general, uh, motivations and so forth. Uh, happened when I um, got deeply into photography and ended up finding that uh, the local daily newspaper featured me on the front page with a series of um, full page uh, photographs that I had done in a tour of uh, Europe and, and one also of Japan. And I decided, let's just see what's out there in terms of work. This was when I was probably 21. So I went, I went shopping around to a couple of employment agencies and found somebody was interested in what I had done and said she actually had a possibility for me working with a consulting firm relative to philanthropy. And so that's where I actually got my start in this. But from the very beginning, Richard, I, I, I kept questioning things such as why do people give and the conventional way of kind of the notion of arm twisting when it comes to fundraising and so forth was appalling to me. So I kind of went off on my own course to think about how, how could we approach all of this in a way that is more human and more humane and so forth. Finally, after having uh, the book you mentioned, The Raising of Money, was actually, thanks to high sales in the first couple of decades, still ranks as the all-time best-selling book on fundraising uh, because people buy boxes of the, the, of the books. So even with having had that, I really decided that I did not want to be a public figure in this and be out there doing all the keynotes and so forth. I needed to withdraw and learn more, which took me into the area of uh, social constructionism, organizational behavior, and so forth. Question here, when you say you needed to learn more, do you feel like you needed to learn more about fundraising? Have it just written a book about it or is it other topics? That's a great question. Uh, I think I was more focused on how could this work be done better by understanding more about human behavior. But what happened was I met some people involved with appreciative inquiry and organizational behavior, and it just fascinated me. And a number of times, Richard, I'd stop and say to myself, what is this going to do in the area of raising more money? How is this really going to be useful to me? I'm glad I just followed my interests because, in fact, it did end up becoming the central organizing principle of, of uh, the kind of work that I do now. So the, what we then come up to, the last piece of this just is the book uh, Bounce Back Higher, which was prompted by the pandemic. Uh, that plus certifying people in their delivering of the Quest retreats that I've been doing for 30 or 40 years, something like that. And, and that brings us to now. To, to where I am at this point. So what, um, I don't know, in fundraising, what, what was the most exhilarating raise you've done? Or maybe the scariest one. Maybe it was your first one. I don't know. Maybe it was your biggest one. But do you have any stories about when you asked for a substantial sum of money and you were quaking or, or you got it and you were just thrilled and you were happy you were expert enough to get it? Well, interestingly enough, I have rarely asked anyone because I've always been in the role of consulting, teaching, writing about it. And so the experience that I come off of is generally that of other people who have been in this position, particularly because I grew up in an era where the idea was that for this is for major, the, the million dollar plus, oftentimes multi-million dollar commitments, philanthropic commitments that people might make. And so what we found is that oftentimes volunteers are the ones who are most effective at inviting investment on the part of people. And I think you'll notice I make a switch here. It's not about soliciting, it's about inviting investment. So there's a mm. whole 
sort of sense of a different way of thinking about how this is an opportunity for an individual to find meaning and and gratification and self-efficacy in their lives rather than an organization or cause needs the money. So if I were to really name one in particular, though, I think probably one that I was involved with was the saving of a university. I didn't know things were as dire as they were when when they approached me on this. And um, I was only in actually interviewing chair of the campaign and chair of the board, uh, maybe 10 years later that I learned about the growth of the endowment that they had. And they, they, I mean, they didn't only stay afloat, they really flourished as a result. And all of it, Richard still comes back to the same thing, asking questions. Like I, I asked in this group, this one, I was actually more central. And so I asked a group of the major donors, well, actually I'll tell you how it happened is I was getting ready to walk into the room to ask the question of why do you give to this university? The president said, "Mm, that's a little, I think he wasn't comfortable with it. So he said, could you ask why do people give? I said, and I was kind of chicken then. I was pretty young and I just said, okay, I'll ask that. So I asked that question. And then the first hand that goes up among these philanthropically active people, he says, I don't know why people give, but I can tell you why I do. And so I got exactly what I was looking for, is for a person to tell me a story about what what uh, evokes in them, what, what gets them going to where they want to make a really significant financial contribution to an organization. So see, I've done marketing for years, and I would bet that people are more familiar and comfortable with marketing. And raising money seems alien, especially to me perhaps to other people. Can you speak, what, what in your observation are the main differentiators between marketing versus, you know, asking people if they're willing to donate or however you ask it, however you craft it. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Well, I actually wrote the very first book I wrote was philanthropy and marketing. And I attempted in that to take marketing principles and apply them to the whole process of raising money, because I felt that it had a selling rather than a marketing orientation. And then if you just take that to answer your question more specifically, Richard, to take that into a more specific contrast between marketing and what we're talking about doing is that marketing misses the piece oftentimes of a person's personal journey and what significance they can gain, uh, what rite of passage it can be for them to to feel that they've really made a difference in in a significant way. And so sometimes when we get involved in marketing and right now, uh, metrics are driving a lot of what's being done with philanthropy, with major universities and so forth. And not, not to refute the value of the metrics, 
but there are personal narratives to be found with an individual to the point where actually it, it can be it can be an absolute breakthrough for a person if they're allowed to talk about the message they want to send with the contribution they're making, why they're doing it, how it fits into the story of their life and so forth. Is that making sense to you? I'm not sure about the delivery of it. So do you tell the person, hey, I'd like to hear your story. I'd like to put your story, let's say, on our foundation's communication page or podcast, or whatever it is. And later on, you ask them to donate or like, how does this fit in the whole, into the whole process? Yeah, I think in that if you strip it down to its essence, it is first to engage in conversation multiple times and and then to look at what they are interested in doing so that what ends up happening is that the cause puts its uh, future within the context of the individual's desires to to make a difference in the world. So it's not presenting with needs to a potential donor, but rather opportunities that fit within their context. And oftentimes it is a, a number of, really want to say it, a great number of visits. It's, this is not going to hit somebody up and just going to see them one time or two times or something like that. It is really about developing a, a trusting relationship. So how do you identify, first of all, the people that potentially could be good donors? And then down the road, what if you're talking to 35 people? How do you know who to call when? And how do you know that any of them are going to come through? And how do you balance all this activity? Well, we have a saying that they're right under your nose. Usually the people who um, have the greatest capability and readiness are people you already know. And oftentimes people are overlooking them out there looking for new people, ones that are not as familiar with what the the cause is. So that's one aspect of it, Richard. Again, these major universities, healthcare systems and so forth have, I would call machinery really set up for the identification of donors, the, the moving them from the five and 10 and $25 uh, direct response to something that, that warrants a face-to-face visit and so forth. So there's, there's a, a lot of uh, pretty sophisticated technique that is, is used, whether it stays in direct response, direct mail, or whether it moves into the face-to-face. There, there's a lot to, um, to that. We tend to break through all of that and just say, let's take a look at a few people who have been, for example, board members and past donors and to have these meaningful conversations with them. And so that you, and that's the part that often gets lost when people get involved in the machinations of we have to do this and we have to do that. We have to develop the case for support. We have to do this and that. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Well, are there any stories that you've had or you've watched your students have or your readers have with donors that, you know, they told you the story or you were in the story and you were just like amazed by it. And you think it'll be instructive to tell people anything comes to mind. The way I'd answer that, Richard, is to say that I'm thinking in particular of a gentleman who was, had been on the board of a particular organization for a number of years. He had never really made any significant contributions, $1,000, $5,000. That, I mean, I'm not saying that's not significant because depending on somebody's circumstances, that could be a real sacrificial type of a gift. But in, in his case, People were thinking that 
when a capital campaign would be undertaken by this institution, that he might be capable and ready, willing to contribute, say, $50,000. He was then engaged in the development of the case for support, which is the common tool used, might be thought of as the brochure on the part of these kinds of causes. He was engaged in that, and he was also engaged in a process of identifying who the leadership could be for the campaign. Uh, And of course, he himself would have been a candidate for that. You want people to be involved who have those kinds of relationships and also the wherewithal that they could take a a leadership role in this. And so he was looking at things such as the criteria are used for selection of uh, general chair or co-chair of the campaign. And one of the things that was on the list was the capacity to make a pace setting commitment to the campaign. And he asked how much that might be or what I know as I recall it now it was that the goal was such that he could figure out uh, what was likely to be required he said this is not somebody who just has some money this has got to be somebody who's a multimillionaire. that ended up becoming a very important point that he made because it was in the actual development flowering of this campaign that he then went on with his wife to make a commitment of instead of the 50,000 that people thought might be possible. The reason this is important is because the peers of this person saw that and realized what his, uh, what his background had been and so forth. And they were so moved by that, that a number of them increased their level of giving based on understanding what this gentleman had done. So there's one of the social proof it's going on in there. There's one of going to understand what is it going to take to make this thing successful. And as he was developing uh, with others, this case for support, which is, is this idea of why have people given in the past, his own awareness uh, became more acute about the importance of this organization as a vehicle for what he wanted to see in the world. Okay. So he ended up making, what, a $500,000 gift? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. And- which is a hundred times what you expected. Wow. Yeah. Well, but that wasn't the only one. I mean, once somebody makes a commitment like this, usually if they're sticking around, there's going to be more, there's going to be plan giving uh, where they do some estate planning and things of that sort. In any case, the endowment over this period of time grew to something like $200 million. And this was something they would have never thought was possible. And 500,000 doesn't sound like a lot out of, uh, $200 million, but it's, it, it is very interesting how powerful it can be, especially when a person like this, as a volunteer, as a board member, goes forth and invites others to make investments when they themselves have already done that. Interesting. So what's the interaction like once someone uh, makes a gift? What, what do you see organizations do right and do wrong in terms of their communication You know, before, during, and after someone makes a major gift? A lot of times the stewardship of that falls a bit by the wayside. The best people in the field make sure that that uh, the attention is going to go to the person. And most of that attention is not in a plaque and uh, how wonderful you are and a party and all of that. But what happened as a result of making this commitment? And that's the biggest place that your question opens up to, I think, Richard, is that there's an opportunity there for somebody to really see 
and it's not even for them just to see what the institution or the cause or organization has done, but for the organization, cause or institution to actually have done something really significant. A lot of times there's significant promise of what can happen, a vision and so forth. But when it comes down to it, a lot of times things aren't that different than they were before. And that's so central to a person's being able to see their own self-efficacy in, in operation, being able to have really made a difference. Well, do you come in typically as a consultant? And if so, do you come in at the beginning or the middle or, you know, once a nonprofit is kind of floundering and you bring them back to life, like what have been some of your roles? And, you know, then I'll get into insights and maybe on some of the roles, but it's okay. Uh, it used to be as consultant, but I haven't done that for quite some time because my all of my work is now focused on providing people with a retreat setting in which this can be this work can be advanced and also other people can be trained in how they can deliver these retreats and hmm. except for the one occasion that I can think of that I mentioned earlier I have not gone in because in, in that case I didn't know that they were in such dire circumstances but I would not go into re on a rescue mission it, instead we're, we're always looking at how can we take something that's good and make it great raising people's sights to consider something that they would have thought was impossible and really recognize that it is possible if you do things right that you can do something that you would have never imagined before and um, and break through completely. So I guess you've abstracted yourself. Now you're the coach for the coaches. And you're doing you know workshops of multiple people at once in one location. It sounds like. Yeah, exactly. Okay, makes sense. An example right now for is that we have a major initiative that should become a movement in the area of mental health, and this is uh, a number of different organizations are working on the idea of re reduction of stigma and so forth, putting in mental health within the context of overall health, rather than seeing it as something that is separate. And so in this case, we're using the vehicle of these retreats, training people in leading these retreats, so that we can engage people in this conversation about what this movement can be. Now, philanthropy is a piece of it, but it's not the purpose of doing it. There's a larger movement and so philanthropy fits into that, the philanthropy being a love of, of humanity, uh, because the work that they do in mental health and behavioral health is an expression of one's love of humanity. So all of this stuff kind of gets mushed together in a great way. So it doesn't have to be bolted on that that fundraising is bolted on at the end to say, OK, now we need to get the money. And it includes people who have all kinds of wherewithal, financial, as well as wisdom, uh, connections, whatever they might have to bring to it, are, are in on the ground floor, rather than going to them afterwards after the staff has figured out, this is how we're going to go about doing this. Especially with something with the pandemic and all the other upheaval, where there's real question about, as, as you have are, are really doing something with post-traumatic stress and the possibility that these organizations are looking at as post-traumatic growth. So I've taken a pretty big swath here, Richard. I don't know if there's any questions in any part of that that is particularly of interest to you. What have you seen organizations do right 
versus do wrong. Like, you know, you kind of spoke about this so far. So you said philanthropy can't be an afterthought. Sounds like it has to be an integral part of an organization, everything they do. But again, you know, going back to the outsider's perspective, what have you seen organizations do where they really wildly succeeded versus ones that stumbled and just couldn't get, get their footing? I think that one thing I kind of hinted at, which was the one of paying attention to the needs that you have as you go to meet with somebody, uh, in contrast to what's important to them. That's one place. And to think that the more compelling the case is for why you need the money would somehow make a better case and would, would uh, excite the person. And it's really a matter of upending that. That's where marketing comes into it, because you're really trying to pay attention to where a person is coming from. And, and then the other thing is, uh, there's a great objectification that goes on with people meeting with people who are philanthropically active or, or philanthropically inclined. I, I think a lot of that stems from being nervous about social class differential and so forth, and that there's a lot at stake here, and somehow money makes it even more sweaty palm than it would be if there were any other reason that you were meeting with somebody. And what that takes to, to get a reduction of that sense of objectification of the person is to go in and touch your own life in terms of the times you've made contributions. And a question that we'll ask sometimes is, think back to the earliest memory you have of the time you made a contribution, whether it was financial or something else to benefit someone else. So doing the self-work uh, can make all the difference in the world in terms of how you approach someone else and able to see them more as a colleague, as a peer, rather than someone that you're soliciting. Yeah, I've, I've donated recently, you know, not large amounts, but I've donated to a number of organizations. And from what I know is, you know, I was very passionate about the issue they were talking about. And that's why I donated. I felt like an urgency and needed to happen now. Otherwise, you know, a bad thing was imminent. I felt like they were doing good work. I didn't have time to do the work that they're doing. You know, I can't do everything. Neither one, no one can. Um, I guess those are all the things that came to mind when I've donated recently. I believed in the person. I've heard from them a lot. I think I understand what they're doing and why, and I like them. On, on, on. Yeah, all of those things. Yeah, that's great. And and thank you for what you've done. I think one other thing that you've done is, and you probably don't think of it as often, which is what you've done with creating finding genius because you have funded this yourself and I've worked with a few people who've done things like this and they tend to overlook the value of what they've done which is probably a good deal more than what money could have been earned if the the the, the work was applied to a money making enterprise there's an awful lot of heart and passion that's put into it you said that you believed in the person yes that is a really important indicator of how successful something like that is going to go. And you also said you felt they were doing it for you. That's one of the things that's very difficult for people who are doing the, in quotes, asking, or I'd call inviting investment, to get straight on is that actually the person who's going to contribute money does not have, you think they have all this power because they've got the money because that's what you need and want. But in fact, you have a big piece of the puzzle, which is you've got the capacity to be able to do something in the world. You're set up, you have a staff or whatever it is, and that's your work. And so oftentimes that's uh, paid less attention to, and we overprivilege 
the piece that we feel that we're missing, which is the money. Yeah, I just I was just thinking again of all the elements that um, were necessary. One one story I have this is from a while ago. Um, a marketer that I've followed and listened to for a long time. His name is Dan Kennedy. He was helping this um, like this animal sanctuary in Ohio. And what what they did in their newsletter, I thought was pretty cool. Like they would say, um, you know, we're looking for donations. Uh, one thing you could donate to is like you know Bob the pig. We just got him, and to feed him is fifty bucks a week. So if you want to donate two hundred bucks, that'll feed him for a month. And then we need to replace the roof on the barn, you know, for the horses, and that's six thousand dollars. And you can donate to that specifically if you want, or you know, we have this tractor we need to fix. But that's how they divided up their giving, and I thought it was pretty cool because they had pictures of each thing. And I did feel a pull to donate to one thing more than another. So it seems to have worked. Yeah, because what they're doing is kind of the old thing of which which pencil do you want to buy? The green one, the blue one, or the orange one? And instead of the question of, do you really want to buy a pencil? So that you're getting into the choice making part of this. And this is a good point of entry for someone. But if someone's got good financial capability, uh, having a conversation about why they did that, why they chose it, why that might be a passion of theirs, that that could actually be one of the most productive pathways to really raising significant money and having a long-term relationship, because that's what you're really looking at is not one time hit them up, but rather the long-term relationship and where the person that introduces you to friends, they want family members to be involved in it and on and on. How long have you seen it take from scratch for someone to start raising money significantly? Is it is it quick or does it take a long time? The rule of thumb in the business of this is three years for some a person to make a major commitment from when they've made smaller ones. To set up a whole program and so forth, it really is, Richard, quite variable uh, in terms of how much time it takes. But it's possible that if you have a genuine, authentic, meaningful conversation with a person, and then another one, and maybe one more, that there could be a breakthrough right then and there. And so, and, and I'm talking about million dollar plus commitments. I would say that there's usually a pre-existing relationship, or there's some connection, or they've done something like this before sometime, but maybe not at the magnitude. But if they can, again, going back to that in this notion of if they can fit see how this fits into their life and what they want to do, then it's possible for an amazing breakthrough to happen. But it, yeah, (laughs) it it doesn't happen all the time. It's not like there's a science to it. There's much more of an art to it. And so it's a matter of being able to intuit because you asked earlier about um, knowing where you want to spend your time and who the people are. There's a lot of research that's done by major institutions on what people's wealth is and so forth. But my experience has been more with people who know one another in a given community or even in a professional community that's not just geographic. And oftentimes that's a more effective way to go about it uh, if you're looking for just a few donors in contrast to trying to put together thousands of them. Oh, yeah, that's one question. Um, Is it better to go after a few big hitters or to go after only small fries, you know, like do a GoFundMe campaign? Uh, the law seems to say that you need both, or at least you need small donors too, if you're going to be, let's say, a public charity. But w- what have you seen as a good strategy? My good friend, Jim Hodge, who I first met when he started his 30-year career at Mayo, calls it a campaign of one. And I'm entirely with him on that, which is that 
it could be as simple as one person making a commitment. Now that isn't as sustainable as having many people, but it, but to get things going, one person can make the difference. And I'm thinking of a campaign in particular where I think it was $10 million and the first person to be offered an opportunity to contribute was you can contribute $10 million if you'd like to do it. If you'd like to split it up, we can go talk to somebody else about $5 million. And maybe there's actually wisdom in splitting this up. In other words, not you taking the full $10 million. Now, I know that sounds counterproductive, counterintuitive to suggest to somebody that they would give less. But if you're really in this together in a collaborative way, and we don't have the time here to get into all of it, but how you end up in a situation where you're both on the same side of the desk looking at what would be the most strategic way for me, if it's me making this contribution, what would be the most strategic way to do that? So I'm very, I want to say that very loudly, that uh, people will waste a lot of time going for the $10 and $50. If you've got years to do it, to build it up, but the alternative to that is to go for the larger dollars with the fewer people. So you, so you can really treat them as human beings instead of as numbers, as bank accounts. Is that making sense? Yeah. Yeah. No, I understand. Right. If you're going to go for a lot of little ones, five, 10, 20 bucks a piece, you're going to have to get a lot of people. First of all, I would guess the marketing probably is just as hard. And then you would need to make the effort. It sounds like to hopefully escalate some of those people to higher donations over time. But I can see if your focus again is, you know, little base hits and little bits uh, that may be beat out by getting a few major donors that take time to cultivate. Yeah, right. Exactly. Okay. Um, to tie this together to recent times, have you seen philanthropy changing much, you know, during the virus situation and um, bounce back higher? Does that incorporate any philanthropic ideas or is it completely different? It's recovering from, uh, you know, from the problems that have happened. What we've seen is a lot of major philanthropy going to social causes, uh, particularly early and mid through the pandemic and so forth. And now we're seeing a number of major donors saying, I want to return to the university or the health healthcare system has always been somewhat active because of the pandemic, but I want to return to these places, even the art museums and so forth, because they really are important to me. And so we're seeing some really significant commitments being made that way. And of course, we were seeing this whole, whole area of social justice. There's a lot of uh, awakening going on in terms of the social dimensions of this. And I am no expert in, in this. A lot of people track that sort of thing. And actually, I'm much less interested in understanding the trends as I am in what's going on in a particular person's life. And so the, the, the book, Bounce Back Higher, is specifically about philanthropy, if you define philanthropy as love of humanity, uh, and giving expression to that love of humanity. And while in that book and others that I've done, we do get into how we can reframe and think of raising of money as something that is really, quite frankly, more noble and a higher calling than just uh, scraping around to, to get some money. But it, it's all, Richard, focused on this idea that people want to contribute. They want to make a difference. They want to know that they have counted. So self-efficacy, whatever way it get, gets expressed 
is central to the theme of this book about bouncing back higher because the isolation that people feel through this pandemic, which you know as well or better than anybody, uh, contributes to depression, anxiety, all of the kinds of mental and behavioral health issues. Um, and connecting with people is the antidote to that. So contribution actually contribution is actually an antidote to the isolation and it's health promoting um, health in general, mental health in particular. Yeah, it makes sense. And as you're talking, I mean, that's exactly what I felt. <laughs> I didn't have time to do everything myself. I want to make a contribution in, you know, in other areas. So I donated and it was only to places that I believed actually would do something with the money and, and make the effort amplify, you know, they would, they would take my money and others and amplify it and magnify it and then achieve the end. So that's exactly why you got it. Yes. So that's, that's what we're always trying to get at. And see, if you and I were having a conversation and I was representing a cause, it would be to try to understand the kind of inner workings of how you think about something like this. And while we're talking about it in general terms, because it does apply to a lot of people, it may be really specific to you. When you start talking about magnification, magnification might suggest that you would be interested in doing something like matching gifts, where you're able to see that you know, your $1 contributes to $4 being contributed by other people. But this notion of at the center of all this, Richard, is that people want to make contributions. And so it's, it, it's not trying to convince people to do it. It's giving them a pathway that they can do what they already wanted to do. And that's what you wanted. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, very good. Um, We're just about at the end of time, but uh, I just wanted to, again, ask one or two questions about your new book, Bounce Back Higher. What's uh, What was the motivation for that? It's probably obvious, but what are one or two key takeaways in the book that people will enjoy if they get it? Well, I think the main one would be taking a pause, getting out of the river. This really comes out of Chaucer. <laughs> um, getting out of the river of daily life long enough to take a walk and talk as a second step with some trusted people. Uh, in, in our case, a lot of times it ends up and it's reading the book as a way you're doing that or uh, coming to one of the retreats that we do or that somebody else does. And to use that as a chance to recognize the growth that you've actually come through during this time. So, th so that's, that, desire when I recognized the power of that and saw that that was what happened for me in my life with, you know, quitting high school, joining the Navy, all that. There were pauses in there where we really allowed me to grow in a new and different way. So that's really what this book is about. Although many people find that it's different things that really uh, work for them. It's a very brief, short book. And we use uh, videos in it as well in order to be able to bring people's stories alive. Oh, very cool. Oh, so you said you use videos in it. Does that mean you have like a QR code or a URL in the book? And uh, can yeah. Go right to the video. Yeah. yeah. And it, it, um, either, either if you get it as a, you know, as a Kindle or e-reader, e then you, you've got access more simply by just clicking. But if you're dealing with a print book, th then you're getting a URL that takes you to a web page that has all six of the stories. Like one, for example, of this man who's leading a lot of this mental health movement in which he does, he said in the field, what's wrong with you has been the big question for so many years. And finally, it has changed not to what's wrong with you, but what happened to you? And he has suggested now, and this is part of this movement, is 
It's a question of what's possible for you. And so I invite, if, if you have a listener who is, if, if, or as I speak to a listener uh, and say, if you have an interest in this and, and the reduction of stigma and all of that, uh, s- send me a note and we'll put you in touch with the right people because we really are growing this movement very quickly, but very smartly, I think. Uh, email is quest at jimlord.org. Q-U-E-S-T, like the first five letters of uh, the word question at jimlord.org. Um, let's let's restate the name of the two books, and I would guess they're on Amazon and all over the place. And then, um, if people again want to get in touch with you or one of your coaches for fundraising services, um, you know, what are all these resources for people? Where should they go? The easiest thing is to get bounce back higher because then it it, it speaks to all these things, the retreats and everything else at the end of it. Uh, so it's bounce back higher, and the uh, other one is the raising of money. And in between, there was one called what kind of world do you want? And that was written right after 9-11. So uh, this is the counterpoint to the book written after 9-11 because it's written in the pandemic. Okay. Well, very good. Jim, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was really great to meet you. I appreciate you being here. Thank you, Richard. And I appreciate what you do. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.